Thank you, Connie. I set you up with those names today. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray once more. Father, it is good for us to stop for a moment and remind ourselves that what we just sang in that last song is true. All that you have done for us, it is, it is infinite, it is glorious, and it is good. And so you are worthy of all of our praise. And so we can come to you today with, um, with, a, with a quivering voice, and we can come to you today like a, like a child hopping and skipping too. We can come happy, smiling before you. So I thank you. I thank you that you are mighty, awesome God. And because of your son, you are daddy. You're daddy. We can come to you now. So we can come boldly before your throne for mercy and help in our time of need. And that's what we're going to do now as we look into your word. As we look into the coming year, we, we ask you now, by your spirit, would you commission your spirit to control me and to fill this room and to give us the, the mercy and the grace and the help that we need in this year, in our time of need, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we keep hearing the phrase, the new normal, whatever that means. Um, what, whatever it means, no matter what, we are going to have a new normal in the coming year. That's, that's not a question. The, the question is, which new normal are we going to experience? And I, a mistake that we often make as, as human beings in, in thinking about a new normal is that a new normal is abnormal. But uh, in his book, Paralandra, one of C.S. Lewis's characters says this, haven't you noticed how in our little war here on earth there are different phases? And while any one phase is going on, people get into the habit of thinking and behaving as if it was going to be permanent. But really, the thing is changing under your hands all the time. And neither your assets nor your dangers this year are the same as the year before. That's true every year, COVID or no COVID. Our assets and our dangers are changing from year to year. What's consistent is the war. The war began in the garden and it has raged all the way up till this day. And therefore, the, the question for us today is, is how will we respond into the new year? How will we take our assets and reply to the dangers with those assets? That's the question. How will we do that? How will we do that in 2022? The people of Haggai's day were in a very similar situation. They had come out of exile, and they were experiencing the new normal of new normals. Um, and their experience can serve as a paradigm for us as we think about the new year. So what I want to do today is look at their experience, and then what I want to do is draw out three, three principles. that They will end up being three principles of worship, three functions of worship for us, and I want to apply those to us in the coming year. But, but first, the passage. Haggai lived about 540 years before Christ. The Babylonians, prior to this, had completely laid waste to Israel, completely. And then they took the educated and the useful, in their mind, back into exile, back into Babylon. But then a generation later, God incited the king of Babylon to allow the Jews to return to their homelands, and a small remnant did just that, a small remnant. They took the risk, traveled the 700 miles, built homes, planted fields. They worked. They risked and they worked. 
and they flourished. They flourished. But by the time Haggai steps into the picture, something is amiss. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Note that his concern is not, God's concern is not with their taking care of themselves first, with their building their houses and planting their fields before they rebuilt the temple for worship. That's not the problem. The problem is what they're feeling now, after that period of time has passed, and what they're thinking now. God knows we need shelter, clothing, food. God knows that. God is concerned with the bent of their hearts at this moment in time, after the return of the remnant, after they've built their homes and planted their fields. However long it's been, it's been not long enough for that. God has been kind and patient. So, and what's the problem? That after they have attended to their own needs, they continue to put off the rebuilding of the temple for the worship of God. This is a heart problem. And so, beginning in verse 4, God sharpens his scalpel and does open-heart surgery. Beginning in verse 4, there's a bit more of an edge to this. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? <laughs> paneled walls were a luxury in those days. And again, the problem is not that they had paneled walls. The problem is the comparison that they had paneled walls and God's house lied in ruins. That was the problem. God's not against paneled walls. This is the problem of every generation of God's people because when you live by God's law, all things being equal, you'll prosper. You'll prosper because you're going to live according to the fabric of the world, of the universe, of reality. And all things being equal, you will prosper. But the perennial temptation, I think it was Cotton Mather that said this, is that uh, living by God's law, living according to God's ways gives birth to prosperity, and then the daughter consumes the mother. <laughs> the prosperity consumes our focus upon God, and we simply live for the blessings of God without God. That's a temptation in every generation, especially here since World War II, especially in our peace dividend. So God needs to get their attention because they've become content with this situation, and that's the problem. They're content with driving past the ruins of the temple on another trip to Home Depot, <laughs> and they think nothing of that. So God has to get their attention. So he says, verse 5, "'Consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat and drink, but you never have your fill. You have clothes, but you're never warm. You earn money, and your money just seems to go through the holes in your money bag.'" Verse 9, you looked for more and more prosperity, but behold, it came to little. Why? Because God says, verse 9, I blew it away. I withheld the dew, verse 10. I told the earth no more produce. I installed dim-witted fools in Washington. I called for spiraling inflation. Do you hear me? I called, God called for spiraling inflation. God called for that. God called for prices to soar and for your spending power to dry up. Why? To get our attention. In the only place that we rich Americans would notice are pocketbooks. To get our attention. And what's more, verse 11, God says, I'm planning to do worse, by the way. I'm planning to bring a drought. You think this is the end? You think this is the worst it can get? 
Why? So that my people would stop and ask, what is God trying to tell us? Verse 9, that while each of you busies himself with his own house, my house lies in ruins. So, again, I hinted at this just a second ago. It is wholly possible that God's purpose right now in our economic and other difficulties, among three million other things that he's doing, is that he is doing it for the church, for his people. Have you ever considered that? That inflation might be for us? Huh. That maybe, maybe the dim-witted economic decisions emanating from Washington are for us. God's doing it for us to get our attention, for the church to wake up. But not just that we would busy ourselves with a building. God's not saying, come on, you know, paint the walls. Verse 8, he says, go up to the hills, get some wood. And he tells the people, build, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. That's his goal. That's his point. That's the center, as I, as I hope to, to demonstrate today, of everything. Literally Everything. That is the ground zero of everything. God seems to think that the most important thing, period, is the worship of him. God seems to think that what we and the world and the universe needs most and is designed for is his own pleasure in our glorying in him. God seems to think that is the center of what? Whatever comes to your mind. That's it. That's it. Well, that's the sermon. That's the prophet's sermon. That's Haggai's sermon. It's not the end of my sermon. That's the end of Haggai's sermon. Don't you wish. But how did the people respond? How did the people respond? Real simple. Verse 12, obedience and fear. Obedience and fear. By the way, it's not in my notes, but it just occurs to me. Um, the order here is, make note of the order in verse 12. I, I mean, I wish I would have got this somewhere else in the sermon, but I'll say it now. So often we, we think, I need to get my heart straight. I need to get my feelings straight. And then I will be able to obey. But the order here is notable. What they did was they said, oh, okay, and they obeyed God, and their obedience of God brought about the fear of God. We think, I, I gotta wait for my, you know, I gotta get more fear of God. I gotta, I gotta get that. No, obey. <laughs> if he, is he your king? Obey. And obedience brings its own blessings. Oh, there are many times when there is a deeper faith, a deeper fear of the Lord that can only be grasped and comprehended and experienced on the other side of obedience. Just as sin always brings its own um, um, wrath from God. Sin blinds us. After you have sinned, you are more blind to further sin. And in the same way, obedience, obedience changes us and transforms us to see the Lord more clearly. 
There's spiritual growth in you for the coming year that can only be found on the other side of saying, there it is, okay, Lord, obedience. Obedience and fear. fear. Fear here meaning respect and honor and acknowledgement that, oh yeah, God is God and not me. <laughs> That's what fear means. But note, note something else here about God. Is God a hard-nosed, you know, taskmaster? Note that by the end of verse 12, their obedience and their fear is only internal. They have not yet acted on it yet. It's just that their hearts have turned, and God sees that. And so then, verse 13, in response to simply that, they haven't gone to the hills. They haven't picked up one stick of wood yet. And God says, verse 13, I'm with you. I'm with you. What I wanted was a change of heart. I'm not a brutal taskmaster. In fact, now that I've seen that change of heart, I will fill your leaders with, your, with my spirit and I will stir up your spirit. And as you work, I will fill all your working in precisely the opposite way that I've been withholding the produce from you. And I will call, cause all your working to flourish. I will work in your working. I am with you. I take great pleasure in that turn of heart. God seems to think that once he gets that heart turn, that whatever flows from that next, it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> it's going to be pretty good, whatever it is. One more thing, one more thing about this passage. Um, note the specific dates. Verse 15. There's a note here. Good to remind ourselves that these are real people going through real trials who wandered like we do sometimes, like us, but who responded to God's fathering, to God's message with heartfelt repentance. And we should respect and love them for this. Why? Because it was from this little remnant and from their simple repentance to obedience and fear that the people of God grew and grew and grew until 540 years later, the Messiah would walk into that very same temple. Who knows where God will take our simple repentance? Back to him. All right, so that's the passage. We, we find ourselves today in a similar spot. After two years of COVID, the virus maybe is in retreat. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Um, who knows what the future will hold? And, and it's very easy for us to say, at least in our minds, we wouldn't say this out loud, but in our minds, in our hearts, we say, the time has not yet come to return to building the house of the Lord. But God is saying to us, I'm convinced today, no, it's time. It's time. Now, having said that, I want to say something else right next to it, to be very clear. As with the Jews, God does not despise or begrudge you or criticize you for taking steps to retreat into your home or in any other way in order to protect yourself during COVID. Nor will God despise that in the future. In fact, I, I want to commend you, Grace Church. You have done well in this season. You've done well. And so our philosophy is not changing going forward either. Each person must decide for themselves what, what is best, what, what's the best approach for you, according to your matrix of risks in the time of COVID. That's all true. That's all true. And at the same time, 
I'm convinced God is saying to us, it is time again to rebuild the house, to get back to working on God's house. Except it's not a house. It's time to recommit to worship for ourselves, for our church, and for our world, for our God. So how do we do this? How how do you do both? Well, I I believe that we'll gain a better understanding of this this call and what it practically looks like when we see these these three functions of worship that come out of Haggai, three three functions. Of course, everybody everybody knows what worship is. Everybody has an opinion about worship. No, and everybody knows that they know, and so they have an opinion. And, and yet, we often do not think about these three functions. We know that at the basic level, worship is the people of God gathered in one place, hallowing, adoring God, worshiping Him. And that's true. But as we do this, God has three functions with us as we come to worship Him. And he wants to restore these functions among his people. The first function is this, formation. Formation. In worship, God forms and shapes us differently because we human beings, we fallen human beings, all things being equal, we tend to bend or curve away from God in our souls and then in our lives, in our loves. This is why James in James 4 goes so far as to say, you adulterous people. Because what we're doing there is, is our, our loves curve away from God. So the ancient fathers even had a sort of a technical name for this in Latin. I think I pronounced this right. Curvitas en se. If you know Latin, that means, simply means to curve in on self. That's what we do. That's what, what our default is. We we curve in on ourselves and we love ourselves. We, we love me some me. That's, that's our default position in life, especially in times of trial like COVID, understandably so, understandably so, and yet not good, not healthy for ourselves and not useful for God's purposes in the world. So this curving, this curving away happens or towards God happens because we, we all have liturgies that are operating in our lives every day. Liturgies are, are orders, are habits, orders of habits that have a great power within them to shape us deeply, to shape what we love. But it could be all sorts of things, not just in church. There's liturgies operating in your life all the time. That set of websites that you habitually visit, one, two, three, four, and repeat. Those catalogs that you habitually browse, those shops you visit, those things on your calendar each week, those games you play, the shows you watch, the books you read, the people you see, the workouts you get in, the food you cook, the memes you send, liturgies, liturgies, orders of habits that are in all of our lives. None of them may be inherently bad, but while we think that we are manipulating them, at the same time, they are more powerfully manipulating and changing us back. We are being shaped and formed without even realizing it by our old habits and the everyday liturgies that we've picked up along the way, especially during COVID. Especially during COVID. Every sit-down with those shows on HGTV is a liturgy which powerfully shapes what you love. Now you get up after watching those shows and that liturgy now has taught you that what you really love was, would be for your walls to be paneled with some of Joanna's shiplap, you know. <laughs> That's it. 
That's it right there. Your love is being shaped. So after two years of rival liturgies growing up like weeds around us, now is the time, now is the time to recommit ourselves back to the worship of God. Because when we come to worship, we think that we are giving something to God, and we are, we are. But, but much more powerfully, he is doing something back to us. As we behold his glory, the, the loves of our heart are being bent away back from the world, back towards him. We're being brought to true north. As we behold his beauties and we worship and we hallow him, he is even more powerfully working on us and we are transformed. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image, the glory of the Lord, from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who was the Spirit. As we behold Him, we are transformed down deep at our deepest parts of us in what we love to Him, back into His image, back into the very image that He wants out of worship. We become more like Him because deep down in our heart, the thing we take the most pleasure in little by little becomes His glory. His glory. The same thing that he wants in worship. His own pleasure in the, in the glories of his grace being glorified in. God seems to think that this is what we need most. So practically, what, what does this mean for us in the coming year? Well, I, for each of these, I, I want to give, for each of these functions of worship, I want to give a tool, an action, and an attitude. To get practical here, a tool, an action, and an attitude. As I think about this, the, the primary tool, the primary tool in, in worshiping God and, and living an entire life and, and recentering ourselves on worship is the Word, the Word of God. That is our primary tool. If we are to be shaped into His image, we must return to the Word in an attitude of worship. By this, I don't, I'm not saying read your Bible more. What I am saying is read your Bible in a state of worship. What do you mean, Jed? Remembering who Jesus actually is. Who is he? He is God. He is king. He is crucified and risen for us. And when we open our Bibles, we read the king's royal law to us. When and it changes everything. It changes your whole view of the whole world. Recently, one of the Monday night guys texted the group, and he texted this, wow, four exclamation points. This is so applicable and widespread, especially in the mockingbird media, our courts, and amongst our politicians. Never read words more true. What was it? A Tucker Carlson quote? Something from MSNBC? Not even close. Exodus 23, verses 1 and 2, and verses 6 through 8. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not bear a witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. 
Here's a guy reading his Bible in worship with obedience and fear. In other words, as if Jesus is risen from the dead. As if Jesus is king over everything, over what's said in the Capitol, over what's said in a newsroom, over what's said in the Supreme Court. Jesus is king over all of it. He's reading his Bible in worship. He's getting it. So I, I charge all of us in the coming year, I charge myself, read the word, not necessarily more, but as if Jesus has risen from the dead and as if the whole world depends upon it. As if the whole trajectory of the world depends upon it. Because it is the center of everything, the word of God. The word of God in our church is the center of everything. Not, not me preaching, but, but then from the fact that everything, everything emanates out from this moment that the preaching of his word It is out of the preaching of his word that everything else in life springs. After all, it was his word that brought everything into existence. It is by his word that everything is maintained. And it is by his word that the world will be redeemed and made new. His word. So I ask you, join with me in this. Join with me and and take ownership of it. Take ownership of this in your own life and take ownership of what happens here on Sunday morning. That's the action point. Take ownership. Take ownership of the central moment in our lives together as a church. What do I mean? Well, again, for you, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. For, for some people, it might say, I have a worship for the Lord. I'm going to pick up trash when I come in in the morning, on Sunday mornings. Someone else might put out the signs. Someone else might bring donuts. Someone else might volunteer for the worship team. Someone else might just come and say, where's the broom? Someone else who, who must continue to stay home these days might say, well, I, I can't do any of those things, but I can pray at 9.30 along with the other men who pray here for clarity and conciseness, for Christ to be clothed and for people to be converted. So th- there's all sorts of ways, but I implore you, own the, the worship of God through his word. And in all of it, as I've already said, the, the attitude that we must approach all of this is not is obedience. I'm not calling for more volunteers. God does not need nor desire volunteers. God just wants souls, hearts that have turned towards him in obedience. And whatever comes next is going to be pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. We're not looking for volunteers. We're looking for obedience. God is looking for obedience. Well, the first aspect of worship is formation. The, the second or function of worship after formation is culture. Culture. <clears throat> the, the remnant of Haggai's day, they were not going back to a, a blank slate. Other, other people had already been planted there in their absence, and so they were going back to a foreign, idolatrous culture. And thus, God was sending them there not just to flourish personally, but to impose a new culture there, to impose a new culture. God was sending them there to create a new culture that would not only grow there, but would be imposed upon the whole world. But they had to start with becoming that new culture themselves. They had to start with that. The people of God, the church, functions in the world to be an alternate culture within the larger culture that possesses the sanity, the wisdom, and the justice that the outside culture lacks and desperately longs for. 
But this does not happen automatically. The only way that this happens is if we are devoted to worship. It's the only way this happens. Because culture is, by definition, the downstream product of what that culture worships. If your God is mammon, I'll show you a culture of shopping malls. If your God is hedonism, I'll show you a culture of car lots and marijuana dispensaries. If your God is the state, I'll show you a culture with vast numbers of buildings filled with bureaucratic do-gooding. And if your God is all three, I'll show you Sacramento. (laughs) Culture is always downstream from worship. And politics, then, is downstream from culture. When, when, when the court, some court next finds the next magical unicorn hidden inside the Constitution, that will only be because the culture already was riding that magical unicorn around. And that will only be because it was worshiping magical unicorns in the first place. But God so loved the world and all of its insane darkness that he gave his only son and that son is calling a bride to himself and his bride, the church, is meant to be a living parable, a window into the good life. The good life. The life of sanity and good order and flourishing and wonder and beauty. Thus the church is meant to be a window into this new life. And to use another metaphor, the church is meant to be a thermostat for the culture, not a thermometer. The church is meant to be a thermostat for the culture, not a thermometer. So the tool we must wield here and the tool that we must must invest in in the coming year is our fellowship, our fellowship. Our spiritual worship to God means reading the Bible and worship as if everything depends on it and then loving and caring for one another out of that word within this fellowship as if their life depends on it and as if my life depends upon it. So we often talk about outreach, but in-reach is just as important. In-reach, that's the action step in the coming year, in-reach. Maybe you will join a, a, a small group or rejoin a small group The McPhersons have started a new group, and I trust that there'll be one for college and child-rearing ages starting very soon as well. But combine this point with the first one, that this in-reach, this web of relationships, must be, if it's to be strong, if it's to be useful in the world, it must be united in mind. It must be same-minded, centered around one object, worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It all starts with worship. So, we're to be same-minded around the gospel, but, but at the same time, we're to be same-minded and we're to be open-minded about who might join our fellowship in the coming year. And I say this because when Christ is preached and God moves, he does what he wanted from worship. He gains his greatest pleasure from seeing the glories of his grace shine like the brightest light into the darkest pits. Oh, God loves that. And God loves it when his people see him do it and they rejoice. So what does that look like? One Sunday, you're sitting next to your buddy. The next Sunday, you're literally sitting next to a prostitute who's wondering, how can I get freedom? How can I get cleansing? How can I get forgiveness? The next Sunday, you're sitting next to a same-sex couple who have heard the gospel and are trying to figure out what repentance looks like. 
The next Sunday, you're sitting next to a toker who literally stamped out his joint on the front patio before he came in here, but is looking for freedom, is looking for life and a family better than the family that he has right now. Things get a little weird. In short, you start to look like Jesus (laughs) sitting next to such people. You start to be transformed into his image. Hmm. God gets the greatest pleasure from his people glorying in the light of his grace, shining into the darkest pits, which requires of us an attitude of openness to God's sometimes surprising work. Okay, well, the, the first function of worship is formation, and the second is culture, and the third is warfare. Warfare. The people of Haggai's day would encounter much resistance because Again, while they were in exile, people had been planted there in, their, in that place, and they didn't like this new culture coming back into their culture. And so, restored worship from God's perspective, God wants them to restore worship because it is the only way to establish this culture, but then when this culture comes into conflict with the existing cultures, there will be warfare. There will be war. Worship, if it is authentic, is warfare. Just think for a moment of the Lord's Prayer. We answer his call in worship to hallow his name and worship him. And then what comes next? His kingdom come. We're given a fresh sight of the good life that is found. Where? Only in his kingdom. And then we want to advance that kingdom. We want to see it come as opposed to all the other rival kingdoms that exist in the world. That's warfare. And so then we pray, we pray for his will to be done. So then we are recommissioned in worship, sent out out again into the field of battle to pursue his will against the will of the God of this world. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers of the air that are behind people, that work in people. Worship is warfare. So in this sense, the the worship of the church is a a military staging platform for Habakkuk 2.14 to be worked out. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Worship is warfare. But as I said, our, our opponents are not primarily people. People are proxies for stronger forces. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we're battling. And so what is our primary weapon? What is our primary tool in this battle? Prayer. Prayer. This is the third tool. Can you pray? If you are listening to me and you are still homebound, bless you. Can you pray? Can you pray through the church directory? Can you pray through our list of missionaries? Can you pray through our budget? Can you pray family by family? Can you pray for each teen by name? Can you call family by family and ask them, how can I be more intelligent and precise in my praying for you? And by the way, I'm praying for you. Can you pray? Can you pray for my preaching? 
Can you pray for God to work through the preaching that people would be converted? Can you pray that God would raise up more workers for the harvest, for the fields are ready? Can you pray? Yes, of course you can. Pray. What if I pray wrong? God said, just obey me. It'll be pretty good. It'll be pretty good. Pray. So we pray. And so the, the action step here is, we said in reach before, and now it is outreach, specifically to three groups of people that I'm convinced we must pursue in the coming year intentionally. The poor in spirit, who do not know God. The poor in provision, who wander our streets and live in cars. And the poor in wisdom, our children. We're forming a team to, to lead the church in tackling these objects of outreach. Perhaps you might uh, voice interest in that team. But this is for all of us. This is for all of us. By definition, the church is in conflict with the spirit and the God of the age. It has been so since the garden, and it will continue until Christ returns. Therefore, worship is warfare. But what attitude should we engage in in this battle? Um, too often, we Christians view our time and age as just you know, a descending slope into a darker and darker morass. You know, we can be downers. <laughs> um, some, some people would say we, we view our time and our season of history as a moral tragedy, a moral tragedy, a tragedy with lots of moral elements to it. But that's not actually true. Not, not when you take the first two points, when you, when you read the Bible as if Jesus is risen from the dead, and when you, when you think about what God is doing, God's purposes in the, the fellowship of the church, the better way to describe what's happening right now is that we live in a deep comedy. Someone else made that up, a deep comedy. What I mean by this is that a, a comedy in the sense that while the nations rage, the Bible says, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. <laughs> he laughs. And it is deep because this is a God who took the darkest, most ugly, most unjust moment in all of human history, the crucifixion of the one perfect man, the Lord Jesus, and brought about from it the greatest light, the most infinite glory, eternal life for you. And his, his glory in the universe. From the deepest darkness, God brings the brightest light. And he's still in that business. He's still in that business. So if you are reading your Bible aright, the attitude that we must have, that the Bible demands of us to have as we go into the coming year, is optimism. Is optimism, not an optimism that's dependent upon, you know, whatever headline you read today, but an optimism that is grounded in the royal words of the king who has risen from the dead. He is still in this business of bringing light from the deepest darkness and doing it with a jolly laugh. <laughs> that's God. After all, as the people worked to rebuild the temple in Haggai's day, another message came down to them, which I can only have time to read, and then we'll bring this to a close. But in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, another message comes from God to the people. 
Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Are you perfect? Of course not. Of course not. All I wanted was a repentant heart. That was good enough. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. What's our equivalent of that? God is with us, not based on your performance, but on the covenant that he cut on the cross of his son. And you can't, you can't ruin that covenant any faster than you could put Jesus back into the grave. My spirit remains in your midst, God says. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What are the treasures? It's people. People. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Because the latter version of this house in walked the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God did that once when he shook the tombs open on the first Good Friday, and he continues to shake the world to this day to shake out his elect and to gather them in, to bring them into his house, to glorify him. So take heart, people of God. Take heart. You are living in a divine drama, a deep, deep comedy that will end with all of God's people seated around his wedding feast table, telling tales of his glory, feasting and rejoicing. And he shakes the world now so that no seat then will be empty. So take heart and live this year with a jolly optimism, not in the headlines, but in God. God is on his throne, and more than that, he is on the move. He is on the move for his own pleasure in his glory. So let me pray. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would grant all of us, start with me, grant us all repentance whatever that should look like in each one of our hearts, grant us by your Spirit repentance. Repentance back to worship the authentic, Spirit-filled, truth-drenched worship of you at the center of our lives. Bend our hearts back to you. The, The greatest pleasure of our lives might be glorying in your glorious grace shining into the darkest pits. Will you do this? Will you do this in us? Will you change our hearts and fill us with joy? Fill us with a joyful optimism optimism as we see you move. So I pray, will you continue to recommission us now as we meet with you in communion and as we welcome a few new members, I pray. Amen.